0: The Australian Medical Students Association acknowledges the traditional owners of the land. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and extend those respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander listeners tuning in. Hello and welcome to the Australian Medical Students Association's podcast, Ampule, where we talk about the things you don't learn in med school. Today I had the opportunity to chat to Nick Earls a prolific Brisbane author, and a UQ Medical School alumni. After leaving medicine for writing, Nick then went full circle and is now teaching a creative writing course to second year medical students. We ended up talking a lot about the role fiction can play in helping doctors be more empathetic as well as touching on some of Nick's many anecdotes from both writing and medicine. From Brisbane, and I hear you're a churchy boy. Uh, Then went on to study uh, medicine at UQ. And from there, you worked as a GP before turning to writing. Uh, You're often described as the Aussie Nick Hornby. For those playing along at home, 48 Shades of Brown is one of Nick's novels and a personal favorite of mine. Now, Nick, one of the archetypal icebreaker questions among medical students today is the classic What would you do if not for medicine? Uh, For you, that seems to be an easy answer. But if it wasn't for writing, what else could you see yourself doing?
1: Ha! Huh. Okay, um, I've never thought about that beyond uh beyond the career in medicine. So <laughs> which would have been either general practice or psychiatry. So it would have been one of those two things. Uh, and then I was totally surprised to uh, to end up with the career in medicine. Um, maybe I don't know. I do a bit of teaching as part of my writing, so maybe something there. But, you know, don't make me contemplate not having this job. I want to keep doing this job.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like you're having a good time. Now, another typical question that medical students ask uh, anyone who's been in medicine is what was your journey through medicine? I hear I didn't quite get the duration of how long you worked as a GP. Wikipedia failed me on that front. But how long were you in medicine for? Like, um, yeah, how did that go for you?
1: Okay. So um, back then it was a six-year undergraduate degree. So I graduated at the end of 1986 and then went to Greenslopes Hospital, which was then a repat hospital and is now a private hospital. I did two years as a resident there and then went into general practice at Turinga in Brisbane and worked in that practice and another couple of practices. That was all part-time. So I only worked Full time for two years. That was in the hospital system, and at the end of that time, I was starting to get paid for uh, for writing some things, and a bit excited about the prospects there. And but at the same time, really interested in psychiatry and thinking, thinking that all those people who'd said to me, "You'll never make a living as a writer," couldn't surely be wrong. So I better kind of better kind of cover my ass, and uh, I went and had a meeting with the Director General of Psych Services and the Professor of Psychiatry, and I was in Queensland Health and the Professor of Psychiatry uh, at UQ, and, uh, and kind of put my plan to them that what I wanted to do was follow the chances I was getting in writing and go into general practice part-time and write part-time and see if I could make something of it. But if I had a future in medicine and those things didn't work out, I was really interested in, in psychiatry and could I come back? And because I wasn't asking an orthopedic surgeon about orthopedic surgery, um, they went, yes, that's a great idea. Uh, there's no need to to accelerate yourself through the training program and be a qualified psychiatrist before you turn 30. In fact, you'll actually be better if you go out and have some life experience and do some other things. So when I realized I wasn't burning bridges, I was just brave enough uh, to step out of the system and go into part-time general practice and part-time writing. And I thought that was what I would probably end up doing. It hadn't occurred to me that I would reach a point where writing would become a full-time job. So I was a GP for a few years, and then for a couple of years, I was the senior medical officer in the health management division for what was then MBF, the health insurance company for Queensland and the Northern Territory, doing preventive health assessments, on people so that was a clinical job as well as a small amount of management and then for 4 years i had a part time job editing the continuing education section of the medical magazine medical observer and that takes us to 1998 and in 1998 i had a book called bachelor kisses published here i had zigzag street published in the uk and i ended up on back to back book tours that went for months and just thought I I don't know if I can hold down a job anymore. And my, my medical editing job was really good because it was nicely paid and it was very flexible. And um and but I just I I was doing I was editing proofs on the plane on the way to the UK and then phoning in the changes from my hotel in London and and just horribly stressed when I should have been totally living the dream with yeah, right. you know publishers putting me up in hotel and all that. Uh and I came back from that and I said to my agent and my publicist, people who had very much been of the don't give up the day job school, I said to them, I oh, I'm really not sure I I can fit this medical job in anymore. I and and they both said to me, Yeah, I don't know why you're still doing that. And I just thought you could have told me when I'd crossed that line from don't give up the day job to give up the day job. But uh, but that's when I worked it out. So that's the last time I had um, any formal connection with medicine. So uh, I was it was good that I got the chance to do some clinical work and the medical editing job was uh, was great while it lasted. I could do that from Brisbane and email it down to Sydney. I technically had an office in the publishing company in Sydney. Uh, and um, they looked after me very well when I did that job. When I when I did it at first, they they wanted someone in Sydney, but they couldn't get anyone at the time. And I think I was the only one who applied from Brisbane. And they said, "Well, we'll keep looking for someone in Sydney, but maybe you could guest edit a few uh, a few editions." And I did that, and it worked seamlessly. So then they thought they'd keep me on. So they said, um, "We mean they sat me down in a meeting and they said." We've been thinking about what we should pay you, uh, and I thought, well, here this is where it all goes slightly to crap uh, because obviously they're not going to pay me what i get in medicine. Uh, but I didn't say anything, uh, and they said, now obviously we need your editorial skills, um, but we also need someone who is or has very recently been a practicing GP, and that's you. So I think that has to be reflected in what we pay you. So what we've done is we've taken the Sydney Urban hourly GPS rate, which would have been the highest hourly GPS rate in the country at the time, uh, and because of your special skills, we've added twenty percent to it. Uh, we hope that's okay. And I was just going, <laughs> don't breathe, <laughs> don't punch the air. Just sit here calmly and go. Thanks. I think we can work with that.
0: So yeah, I think I we can was, work with that.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there I was getting paid twenty percent more than I'd be paid to be a, a GP in Sydney. To sit home in Brisbane in my shorts and t shirt, hassling people about writing articles and editing their often not very well written articles into something that might be readable.
0: Well, I see. <laughs> been quite around the block. Uh, been a very busy man. So you've managed to um, get into a number of different fields, all initially related to medicine and then obviously branching out into writing. How important is it, do you think, for medical students today? To keep their bridges open, I say particularly because I think nowadays with very much of the opinion, you know, uh, you get into med school, you go into medicine, and you try and accelerate through, get your specialty as soon as you can. Yeah, uh, no ifs and buts about it, and none of the other stuff. F- for you, how how, do you, how important do you think it was to keep your bridges open?
1: Um, I think it's, I think it's a good thing for your own mental health and your own personal development. And I, um, as I said, I hadn't really kept mine open. I mean, I did the degree in the minimum time, I then went straight into my residency. And there was just that one moment where I had a chance to do something else. And all the kind of forces around me were directing me down um, the specialised now track. Uh, And if I hadn't if it hadn't been psychiatry and if the people I'd spoken to hadn't been so accommodating and had said I had nothing to lose uh, by taking a, a, a gap year effectively, um, then I think I would have stuck with it and stayed, stayed on that track. So, you know, I owe them a lot for that. Um, I think one of the things about medicine is you do an awful lot to get into medicine and you end up in the degree with a bunch of really smart people. And at the end of that, you come out, you need to work somewhere, then you're competing for places on a training program. Um, There are lots of stresses that are part of that. Uh, And that doesn't make it easy to take the blinkers off and look around at the wider world and give yourself time to do some other things. But I think it's really important to people's development as humans that they try to allow at least some of that in and um among my cohort of med students just the same as any cohort of med students you've got a bunch of people who've got loads of talents uh and they're not all and and medicine's not their only talent and it's um it's great if people get some chance to use it in my year at uni uh there were uh olympians um there were there was a a guy who played the flute with the Queensland Symphony Orchestra. Uh, There was one time when we got back from our summer holidays and we were all asking each other what we'd done during the holidays Uh, and one guy, Peter Carson, got to go, well, Midnight Oil's drummer broke his arm, so I got to drum for Midnight Oil. And the rest of us got up, obviously. Yeah, that was was a total conversation killer uh, right then. And
0: I think it's great...
1: yeah yeah the bar was set so high we could barely see it and had no chance of jumping over it. so we all kind of we all kind of stopped talking about the time we'd spent hanging out at the beach um so as much as possible, I think it's great to preserve a connection with other things if they're in your life because it helps give you some prospect of balance and balance is very hard to maintain while you're while you're Doing what a medical de- degree requires and what the specialty pathways after require. And I think the other reason that all this is really important um, is it helps you it helps you grow as a human, it helps give you more empathy. and there are there's too much testing that suggests that lots of the people who go into medicine are really good at passing the exams but don't have the ideal amount of empathy to yeah. uh, to to work with people. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons I'm back involved with the med school now. I'm doing, I'm doing I'll be doing some writing workshops this semester with second-year students. And uh, it's a selective thing. And I'm doing three two-hour workshops as part of that. Uh, and there'll be other, other writers coming in and doing other writing workshops. Uh, but mine are all based on character because character is a big thing for me in my writing work and why i want to focus on character in the workshops is i want the med students who sign up for the workshops to get a great writing experience to have a great writing workshop to get a chance to think differently use their brains differently develop other skills all that stuff is really good but also if you're writing about a character that's about empathy that requires you as the author to spend time in someone else's head so the final thing we'll be doing as part of that is they'll be taking a case from their clinical experience and fictionalizing it and writing it from the perspective of the patient. Because I think the more we can think of, the more we can factor that in, the better clinicians we will be. Um, You'll ask better questions uh, if you get a sense of how someone talks about and conceives of their own life. Uh, And you'll understand more from what they're saying and you'll be able to take further questioning down a track that will reveal so much more to you. So I think empathy is actually a really valuable clinical skill, and uh, and I'm really glad that I get a chance to uh, play at least some role in highlighting that in the midst of doing what I hope is a is an entertaining writing workshop or two or three.
0: Yeah, I think that's really cool, particularly since you've you know you've done that path where you sort of branched away from medicine into writing and now you're bringing all of that experience back into medicine. In terms of those that don't have the um, fortune of attending your workshops like what are some things related to I guess reading and writing that med students can do themselves to help develop their empathy?
1: Um, There is clear evidence that if you read character-based fiction that it improves your empathy and this has been tested and how they've tested it is they've used photographs. They've taken photographs of people's faces, given people uh, no information about what those people were feeling, and then given them a multi-choice test where they choose which uh, which word best represents what they think the people are feeling. And it turns out that the people who uh, who choose to read character-based fiction actually score much higher in terms of of recognising the emotion that the people were feeling uh, than people who don't. So I think the great thing about reading, I think that separates it from um, film, TV, TikTok, whatever else. Uh, is <laughs> TikTok. that. You, so TikTok is not the easiest place to learn empathy, to, to learn empathy I don't think. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, so if you're reading a book, what you're doing is you're not being given the finished product you're not being given all the pictures and sounds you read the words the words enter your brain and a neurologically active process occurs where you deal with uh with that stuff and you construct the visuals and you construct the audio and you construct the characters based on what you're given and so i think because of that degree of interaction If you're reading something, you're engaging with it in a different way. And if you're reading something that puts you in the head of someone who is not like you at all, suddenly you've got a different way of looking at their world and their life. And maybe you've got a bit more understanding for the choices they've made. And that's a really good thing. So I think uh, it doesn't have to be more specific than that. Uh, find a genre you like, and if it's a if it's a genre that uh, that pays attention to the characters in it, not like say, okay, I heard Lee Child in an interview recently um, talk like an incredibly successful writer and really knows what he's doing, and he was talking about the Jack Reacher novels, and he said that over the course of about thirty Jack Reacher novels, he's consistently forced himself to resist the temptation to allow Jack Reacher any character development um, because (laughs) he's reading. That's what he said, uh, which is so the opposite of how I'd work. And he said the readers aren't there for that. The readers turn up knowing Jack Reacher, knowing what they're going to get. And he's not going to let Jack Reacher have an epiphany because that would just spoil things. He's got to shoot stuff. There are things Jack Reacher has to do. So I'm guessing that that's not going to help build your empathy scores. But um, if you read books that focus on the people that are in them and what they're going through and how they're experiencing it, then that can only be a positive experience. So then you have reading, which takes you away from the stresses of everyday life. And again, there's evidence to support that. There's a study done by the University of Sussex, I think, that said that people who if you read more than six minutes a day of fiction, it can reduce your stress levels by up to sixty-eight percent or something great like that. So, reading is a great diversion, but also uh, it's great for you as a human. There we go. That's my pitch.
0: Love it. That that's incredibly interesting with the the Jack Reacher thing as well. I myself have read. I'd like to say most of them, but I think I've only read ten. So it's probably. Maybe a sixth of them. <laughs> Who knows how many there are.
1: More than enough.
0: Yeah. That's very interesting with the fact that, you know, Lee Child has purposefully re- uh, disregarded character development. Jack Richards yes. to keep the audience. Yes,
1: actively supporting
0: it. Yeah. When I was younger, I um, uh, I was sort of forced into, into reading, which at the time, obviously, I wasn't a big fan of. I just wanted to watch TV, go on the computer uh, but as I've gotten older, I've, I've seen the importance of it uh, and how much I think it's helped me in my life. But recently, I think since I started university, I've switched very much to the whole nonfiction and um, the things like reading self-help books, reading things that give you sort of concrete knowledge and almost disregarding the fiction side of things. But I think, yeah, this has this just very much illustrated the um, the importance of fiction, storytelling and, you know, real characters.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it does a different thing, and I think there's actually good evidence that it does a particular thing to our brains and uh, uh, and how they work. So, uh, so you can tell yourself that the next time you uh, put a self help book aside uh, yeah. and actually pick up some that that while you might think you're actually just having an entertaining diversion, you are actually becoming a better human at the same time. Not that I'm doubting that you're anything but a great human already.
0: <laughs> oh, thank you very much. I was wondering when you were speaking about developing characters and how it's really a product of empathizing with those fictional characters in a lot of films, you see actors like Christian Bale for American psycho, like like getting into the character, dieting like crazy for months on end. (laughs) Does that happen with authors as well? Have you, have you done that sort of thing? Like get into their character?
1: (laughs) Um, Sometimes some only, only for the tax deduction. Like if my, uh, uh, if my character If my character goes hiking on a glacier and climbs an ice, an ice cliff, I should probably do that to inform myself. And I have done that. uh, And I totally love that. Uh, But, um, but really, um, much of it can be a combination of good research and a decent imagination and probably should be. But it is interesting seeing what some authors subject themselves to so that they can, so that they can write something. I read a book a few years ago called *The Sun* by an American novelist called Philip Meyer. A terrific book. It's six or seven hundred pages long. It's massive. It's got several interlinked narratives. It pretty much reveals the entire story of Texas since statehood around 1840 through the lives of several characters. Uh, and there was—I read some interviews with him. After that, because I was I was pretty much pretty in awe of the feat, and I wanted to see what he'd gone through. And it had been ten years since his previous book, and in that ten years, he'd been you know um, plaiting a whip from leather that he'd made from an animal that he'd killed, and learning all this stuff. And there was one thing where he, yeah, yeah, where he'd actually drunk buffalo blood so that he could comment on the taste and texture of buffalo blood in your mouth. (laughs) And I think
0: the twenty
1: first. Just Google buffalo blood and see what comes up. Not everyone has to do it. You can rely on the one person who did it and wrote about it already. So now, if I'm going to write about a character who gets a mouthful of buffalo blood, obviously I've got Philip Myers' experience to to rely on, and I don't have to go suck buffalo blood myself. So uh, I don't. I, I think some authors go further than they need to to have the experience. Um, and uh, but I think it's a balance, uh, a balance between lived experience, research, uh, and imagination. You wanted to feel completely real. And, uh, but there are ways of making it feel completely real without it actually having been completely real in your life.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's really interesting to hear the creative process. Obviously, in some cases, drinking buffalo blood might be a little out there. Yeah. Now, I've always fantasized the life of a writer. I've always fancied myself as like, oh, maybe, maybe later on in life, I'll write a book or something. What actually goes into it for you? Like, is it is it true that you just sort of go to a cabin in the woods and just sit down for six weeks and come <laughs> out with a book, or how does it go for you?
1: <laughs> That's look. I know people who do that, so I shouldn't I shouldn't be here laughing just because it's not my life. Um, yeah, look, I've never <laughs> been to a writing retreat anywhere because I've got a ten year old uh, and I have to make his school lunches and take him up the road to school every day, so um, it, it has to fit in with a with a very everyday suburban life Um, it's an odd job of extremes so if I'm planning if I'm writing something then I've done the planning and I and I make the school lunch take him up the road um, go buy the groceries and then park myself in front of the laptop and go back into my outline and write the next bit that I'm that I'm writing and sit there in bad clothes And at some point, make myself go out for a run so that my body doesn't physically deteriorate any faster (laughs) than it has to, and to breathe some outside air and to get away from the keyboard and to not have the posture of a medieval monk slouching over an illuminated manuscript. So I'll do those things when when I'm writing. When I'm researching, so much of that is online now. I used to have to go to libraries and find the right book. But the scope to be a writer now has increased exponentially, based on the volume of stuff we can discover in such a short period of time from the devices that we've got in our everyday lives. Uh, it's radically changed the scope of what writers can do, because um, I, for example, I wrote a series called Word Hunters for kids a few years ago, which involved etymology, it involved time travel based on etymology. So they'd they'd pass through different periods of time uh, in the history of the evolution of a word, tracking it back to its origins. So I had to do a lot of research, not just finding the right words, but finding out what people wore in each of these 36 different historical time periods and places, and and they carried bags. What would the bags be like? Um, What food did people eat? Things that could have taken me a decade of research uh, last century that I could just do in a couple in a year or, or, or so uh, this century and find incredible amounts of detail. Um, when I'm writing something now, if I'm sending a character to places I don't know, I go there uh, on Google Maps. And if my character is driving from one place to another, like for example, with my novella series, Wisdom Tree of a couple of years ago, there's one in that series called Vancouver and the character flies to Vancouver and is picked up at Vancouver airport and driven to a town called Bellingham in Washington State. And I've been to Vancouver, and I've been to Vancouver Airport, but I've never gone that way out of the airport, and I've never gone to Washington State. So what I did was I knew what kind of story business I had to achieve on that drive into Washington State, and then what I needed to find was physical triggers along the way that might that might trigger uh, the character to think the right thing or say the right thing or do, or do the thing that I needed. So I spent two or three days on Google Maps Street View, driving from Vancouver Airport to a particular street in <laughs> in this town in Washington State, noting everything that I saw and then working out where the opportunities were for me to do the writing things that I needed to do. And then when he got to to Washington State and went into someone's house there, I went to a real estate agent's website. Real estate agent's websites are just the best under-recognized asset that authors have these days because if people, if you need to send your character to a house in a town you haven't been to before, go to a real estate website uh, and have a look at some of the houses that are there, work out where your character fits in socioeconomically and in any other way in that town, work out which which kind of house they'll be in and then the real estate agent gives you 30 pictures of the house so it's like you've been there (laughs) and in my brain in my brain that's how it is with this particular house in Washington state so um, if I think about that house I can visualize it now Um, my brain because it's a 20th century brain uh, it actually treats that house as a place I've been because I've stared so intently at the pictures of the interior of that house so uh, but it's great to have those options And to be able to research that way and it's it's exciting what you turn up when you're able to research that way so that stuff happens at home the writing stuff happens at home and then the strangest aspect of the job perhaps is that it then flips from being entirely inside your own head and in one room in your house to being a public job that can actually fly you around the world to have you talking about what you did when you were sitting inside your own head, inside one room in your own house. So it's got the writers' festivals and the radio and TV and other media interviews and all that side of it as well. So you've kind of got to learn how to operate as two people, one being the introvert that you are at heart uh, that is naturally inclined to hide out at home and invent the stories the other being the extrovert that you've trained yourself to be who can go out into the world, fly anywhere when they need to uh, and tell whatever stories there are to tell. And over time, I've adjusted to that being part of the job that I really like, that it's got those two bits. Some people don't adjust to the public side as much as I have, but I decided if that's going to be part of the job, I don't want to hate it. I want to see if I can learn to do it reasonably well and then have fun doing it. And now I have fun doing it.
0: Well, Nick, you're really selling writing for me. I think I might need to go read some more books so I can look into becoming an author. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. If it, if, it, if it works out, it's a great, it has its great moments. It's like um, 98% tracky dacks and t shirts and 2%. Oh my God, how did I get here? How am I sitting in Los Angeles having lunch with this producer? Or how did I, you get weird things happen to you and some of them are great. For example, 2001, um, Maya decided they would have a Centenary of Federation Gala in Melbourne and they would fly Australians who, 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 were, who had some kind of public, public, public life to Melbourne to be part of the celebrations and I was part of the Queensland contingent and I flew down there um, and it was just amazing. Like I got on the bus, uh, they they took me to the hotel. Uh, so it was, we mostly got, there's mostly limos picking us up and things, but then they put us all on this massive luxury bus to drive us a few blocks down the road uh, to the hotel. And I was on the bus with Raylene Boyle, the sprinter from the 1970s and 80s, Al Grasby, a Whitlam government minister, and I think Molly Meldrum, uh, in conversation. <laughs> and I just thought, I never thought life would give me this kind of opportunity. And um, and and it was a hilarious night. I got to, you know, talk to prime ministers, athletes, uh, entertainers, and we just hung out in these weird kind of groups that never got together before or since. Um, I can remember seeing uh some really interesting combinations, for example. Uh, one of the other people there from Queensland was Sister Angela Mary Doyle from the Martyr Hospital, a legend of the Martyr. And at that time, surely she was close to eighty. Uh, but she's always she's maybe always seemed like that to me. She's great. She's an Irish mum <laughs> who is who is feisty as buggery and really devoted to to the care provided uh, to people at the Martyr. And she's she's pushed governments around for as long as she's needed to, to make things work well. So I've got a lot of respect for Sister Angela Mary. So she was one of the Queensland contingent and she went down there and brought took her Sister Nuala with her. And her Sister Nuala looks like Angela Mary and is also an elderly Irish nun. So there were these two elderly Irish nuns uh, with their navy blue nun handbags. And there was one point where I looked around in the room and I saw the two of them sitting at a coffee table, four, t- four chairs at the coffee table, each of them with their navy nun handbag in front of them, deep in earnest conversation with Molly Meldrum and Angry Anderson. And I thought, this is just such a good night. It's just so crazy. And, uh, but then the highlight of that was uh, when we came to parade because this was Maya and it was the beginning of Australian Fashion Week. And uh, so each state contingent had to parade down the catwalk. And the Queensland contingent was me, Sister Angela Mary, Clem Jones, who was the mayor of Brisbane 1961 to 75, (laughs) and was by then a very elderly man, uh, and Archbishop Peter Hollingworth, who was briefly um, Governor General of Australia shortly after that. And that was us. So it was not a youthful contingent. It was a very kind of ecclesiastical contingent. And there we were standing, waiting to take our turn, the four of us just shaking our heads at the mysterious situation in which we found <laughs> ourselves. And, uh, and while we were there, Megan Gale was the kind of headline model of, uh, of Fashion Week uh, that week, and she and the other models were getting changed near us. Uh, like a nun, an archbishop, and a writer go to Fashion Week And so there we were, and Megan Gale came charging up, uh, ready to grab something from a rack, and she tripped on a piece of plywood set and totally lost her balance. And she was just about to come a complete gutzer, and I turned around and she crashed right into me. So there's Megan Gale wearing nothing but very brief underwear, crashing right into me, chest up against my chest, grabbing hold of me as I grabbed hold of her so that I wouldn't fall over. And And there's her face right up against my face, and she just looked me right in the eye and went, Fuck! And then pushed herself off me and ran (laughs) away. Those remain the only words Megan and I have ever exchanged.
0: That's all you need. That's hilarious. So it's like some like a weird version of the
1: Avengers. (laughs) Yes, yes. So in in light of that, who wouldn't want to be a writer?
0: Yeah, sounding pretty promising to me. Um, I'm just wondering if, obviously, you mentioned before that we have access to so much knowledge. uh, You know. You can basically live in Peru and get an idea of the lived experience mm. in Peru if you just go on Google Earth and look at realestate.com. And I, I find it interesting as well that for me, in my medical education, everything, all the information has just been at my fingertips. Any condition, just a quick type, mm. bang, oh, there we go. Whereas back in the day, you'd have to, you know, look it up in a textbook or whatever. Yes. But in terms of the, you know, there's a saturated market for information. Like, you can never read everything on the internet. Yeah, I think it's the same in terms of written work these days. Like, how do you think if there was, say, a med student looking to get into writing, what what would be the steps you think to of get into the field?
1: Yeah, so I think um, step one is uh, work out which areas of medicine really interest you, and of those, work out which ones uh, might offer you might be most likely to offer you a good part-time option once you were properly trained and then head in that direction in medicine while working on your writing craft um, at the, while you can. And um, I never regretted doing my medical degree. Uh, it was an interesting thing to do. And I also, while I only used it full-time for two years, I used it part-time for another 10 years. And it meant that for that whole time, I was being pretty well paid for working half-time in medicine and that freed up the time for writing and, uh, and I never had to worry about paying the rent or the mortgage or, uh, or buying my groceries because medicine was doing that. So I think, um, think about the medicine side of things uh, while you develop your writing craft on the side and keep trying things with the writing when you can. And then if you can get to a point where you can work part-time in medicine and part-time in writing, you can achieve an awful lot then. Uh, and if there's a chance of anything more beyond that, then then sure, jump at it. Um, but, uh, but for me, having my medical degree meant that I haven't gone through those stressful periods lots of authors have gone through uh, where they're between checks and wondering how to pay the bills. Um, I don't think I'd write very well if I was under that stress and I'm glad I haven't been. I I think I drifted away from the question a bit there. Was your question something, what was your question precisely again? Can you remember?
0: (laughs) I think it was concerning what are the steps medical students, if they wanted to become writers, should take um, at, at this point.
1: Okay, good. Good. Let's look at the writing bit of that too. Yeah, I knew I'd focus so hard on the medicine stuff that I was practically giving the advice that I was given decades ago uh, with the "don't give up the day job." But I think see the day job as uh, as a step on the way, and uh, and and get to part time when you can, and use that time. This is the other side of it. This is the writing side of it. Use the time, Uh, and by that, I mean. Not even full time writers get to write all the time. We've got to promote books. We've got to do a range of other things that pay us.
0: Like interviews for <laughs> medical associations.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's that. There's always that. Uh, uh, but if you've got five or 10 minutes, you can't write a whole lot, but you can think. And if you're developing, mm-hmm. A story. Then you can use that time if you're commuting back in the times when people could use public transport, uh, or or if you're out for a run or whatever. Use that time to let your brain ponder the thing that you want to write about next and explore some some specific aspect of it. And by the end of that ten minutes, you might have some notes to write down to add to the pile of notes you've already got. So writing. We often think of writing as people sitting at a a keyboard and clattering away typing, Uh, but writing is thinking. And I think we can still fit the thinking in around other things. So you can be a writer if you're being a thinker and putting together your story ideas and getting yourself ready for a time when you can book in a bit of devoted writing time and actually do the writing. So I think that's how... I'd go about combining writing with some uh, reliable money-earning thing for the time that that was necessary. And I think we can do a lot if we actually accept that thinking is writing as much as the typing part is. And uh, it can be a good idea to... Think about things like short stories, write short stories, enter short stories in competitions. It's a manageable thing to do. And the more you expose yourself to the the writing and publishing industry, the more they see of you, the more you get published in in journals or or, or get recognised by competitions, the better your writing CV is so that by the time you come to send your novel manuscript to an agent or a publisher, uh, you've got some kind of track record. So that's one other thing too. Um, and we also know people who are, some of whom are my kind of vintage medical graduates, who are having a really nice time combining their medical practice with their developing writing careers. Now their writing careers have developed a while after mine have in terms of 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 the, how, how old they are, uh, but they're applying for... They're getting some things published. They're applying for residencies in Vermont and things like that and taking that when they take leave from work. They go on a writing residency in Vermont and they come back with a manuscript or they come back with an MFA that they did over there. And so I've known quite a few people who have, who have built on the kind of approach I was planning to take in the 90s when I was thinking I'd be a, a part-time practitioner and a part-time writer. So there are quite a few medical graduates I know who are in their 40s and 50s who are managing to have a really satisfying life through practicing medicine uh, for quite a bit of the time, but also building writing time into that and setting themselves up for some writing adventures along the way. And they're getting books published now as well.
0: I do want to ask, so you mentioned that, you know, obviously reading and writing can help develop empathy. And that can inform medical practice and make you a better practitioner. Do you think the reverse is true? Do you think the experience of, for example, a general practitioner informs your writing in a way that you're able to build uh, better characters?
1: Yes, I have no doubt about that. It's a very astute observation, and and I'm confident that that's the case. Um, I think that I think as a writer, I've got a lot out of my medical degree. And that's probably the best, most important thing I've got out of it, even though it's the, at the more subtle end of the spectrum and most people don't notice it.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so I
1: Because I've, I've written some books that have, um, that have doctors as their central characters uh, and that have uh, been helped along by my own medical experience at that time. So it's been useful for providing me with insights into a world that I could then write about several times, but I've written about lots of other people as well. But the more interesting thing about it is the thing you've just described. Uh, And it operates on a couple of levels. One is that practicing medicine in a clinical job that exposes you to, uh, to multiple patients a day necessarily takes you out of your social comfort zone. You're not hanging out with a bunch of people who are just like you, or quite a lot like you. You're meeting people across the full spectrum of life, and you are spending small but very focused periods of time with them in which it's really valuable to get some grasp of their workings as people. And not a lot of jobs offer that opportunity. And along with that, you start to get a sense of how those people formulate ideas and formulate their own understanding of their own lives and you get a sense of how they speak. How good is that if you're someone who has to invent humans for a story? Uh, You have a job in general practice and in some other areas of medicine where you have to work out humans multiple times a day and that's a really valuable thing if you allow it to be uh, when it comes to developing your skills in developing characters who aren't exactly like you,
0: yeah, that's crazy. It's just something I'd never considered. That obviously we all think, you know, if you read more, that's going to inform you um, in your medical practice. But you never think the reverse.
1: Yeah, and actually, yeah, it's it's very definitely a two way street. That one, which is great.
0: What are your thoughts on um, what are your thoughts on kindles? Yeah, I've for a long, long time just been like, oh, you have to read. A paper book it's a better experience it's the right way to do it uh, but recently i started reading stuff on my phone and i'm starting to think that maybe that um the idea that the right way to read a book is the paper the hard copy um, what are your thoughts on that
1: yeah so um it's, it's interesting i looked into this as a peripheral thing when doing my creative writing phd a few years ago um and so I've given it quite a bit of thought. And it it partly depends on how you're using the device that you're reading on. And uh, if you, there is evidence that says that if people read on their phones or tablets and to some extent Kindles, they're less likely to allow themselves to pay deep attention to something and they'll flick through it faster because. That's what they're used to doing on devices. Okay. Awesome. If you're doing something on an iPad or iPhone, uh, there's the potential for distraction. You might flip it, might have an idea about something and then go to another app. Uh, to Or you might, you might read something interesting in the text and think, I want to find out about that, and then go to Wikipedia and look it up, those sorts of things. We can be, these devices are really valuable, but they can lead us to be very distractible and distraction is not the friend of fiction. But that's not the fault of the device, and it doesn't mean that the devices have to work that way. So if you can read on a Kindle or a phone or a tablet and, and, in, and allow yourself to be engrossed by a novel in just the same way as you would on the page, then you can have the same experience as you would have if you read it on the page, on a printed page. So yeah, right. it doesn't have to be different. It depends how we use the device.
0: Yeah, because I've, I've definitely found that. Like I've been <laughs> uh, since I'm in my first, oh, now second semester of medicine, so first year of medicine, and um, my reading has just gone way down. So I just felt like I've yeah. not had the time, um, especially since I now sort of live half of my house, half of my partner's house. And so I'm always on the move, never have any room in my backpack, so I never put a book in there. But since I've started uh, having a crack at the Kindle, um, it's been a lot easier for me to access, easily access, um, like reading a book. And it it almost seems like the equivalent of um, podcasts. Uh, Like the reason this podcast was made is because we realized um, medical students just love podcasts because there's not really that time to sit down and take in things in a different format where you have to put your full attention to it. Whereas, like a podcast, you can just do it on the train blah, 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 if you've got Kindle on your phone, you can sort of um, flick through a few pages on the train as well, something like that.
1: Yes, Um, or if you've got Audible on your phone, uh, you can do that with audiobooks, and that's why the audiobook market has grown 20 to 40% every year over the last decade or so. Um, It's a way bigger thing than it was uh, because some people who were taken with podcasts, realized that that was a way that they could have fiction in their lives as well so there are people who are who are jogging or on public transport or uh, okay so i've actually read the research so i should be i shouldn't just be ambling through this um so yeah so there's like 35 percent of uh audiobook users in australia uh listen to audiobooks while they are cleaning the house uh, 16% of audiobook users listen to audiobooks on the toilet. So we're very big on multitasking uh, <laughs> and we love something that will, that will um, give us something interesting while we're doing something dull. So I think there's a place for all these things. I, I, I need no convincing that there's a place for audiobooks and ebooks as well as for paper books. Um, but it seems very much to be a situation of as well as rather than instead of. So 10 years or so ago, there was a lot of thought that uh, that digital versions of books would replace uh, physical versions of books. But what that didn't take into account is that physical books aren't actually that expensive. So if you look back at historical precedents, uh the same forces weren't applying uh so if you look back um, 120 years ago there were lots of people with horses and carriages uh and the bottom fell out of that industry when the car came along uh because people the people who could have who could afford to own horses and carriages could also afford to own cars and then they didn't have to stable all these animals and and all that kind of thing so that didn't work um uh In the late 15th century, when uh, offset printing came along in Europe, and suddenly people could print books and bind copies, uh, at, before that happened, books, the books that were available tended to be Bibles and they were of course all handmade by monk illuminators and scribes, and they cost about as much as a farm. And within a generation, you could have these paper books that were being printed. And that a, and a merchant could afford to buy one a month or more. So suddenly there was a massive industry, and all those monk illuminators and scribes were out of a job because they have been dramatically undercut. But that's not what happened when ebooks came along. Ebooks have a place and they're really handy. As far as I'm concerned, it's the same story. So, you know, I love it just as much whether people read me on a screen as read me on paper. Um, but what it does is it provides a much more convenient vessel to carry multiple stories around in uh, than paper books tend to be. Uh, but um, but at the same time, paper books don't cost as much as a farm. A paper book can cost twenty or thirty dollars. So what an average Australian can earn in one hour can buy them ten hours of reading. So the paper book was already a good financial proposition, and that's why paper books still exist alongside as eBooks it's not the same as what happened when printing first came along, even though this is the biggest revolution to happen in the industry since that time.
0: Yeah. I really like that take that all of How
1: about that. You didn't expect this conversation was going to go there, did you?
0: I oh no, definitely totally
1: not. off <laughs> down this mad track then.
0: No, that's great. It's a um, I think it's an important insight. It's not about in this case, it's not about replacing but supplementing and increasing yeah. accessibility, the resource, which I think has broad implications across medicine, you know, with things like telemedicine growing, I, I think it's a very similar thing That It's not a replacement, but it is a supplementation to increase accessibility.
1: Yes, I think that's a really good point of view. And the thing about telemedicine uh, is that uh, at its best, it can work very well, uh, but um, uh, at its heart, it's still medicine. And the telly is the kind of vessel for delivering the medicine and uh, uh, and I think I think that's useful but you still need to have an expert at the heart of things and uh, I think it's a very interesting time to be in medical practice now particularly in general practice when so many people must do so much dysfunctional googling uh, of their symptoms before they come oh in yeah and present <laughs> you with this ridiculous um, differential diagnosis that you have to negotiate them away from. Uh, it was probably a lot easier when I was a GP uh, and people really didn't have much of an idea.
0: Yeah, no, certainly, you know, I'm a, I, I should be aware to the fact that, you know, without a medical degree and being an expert, you cannot diagnose yourself. And yet only a few months ago, I went to the GP convinced I had lymphoma.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, I, <laughs> I think. Um, I think that's a a relatively common um, thing early in people's med student career, because what happens is uh, you find yourself in the degree, you work really, really hard, you get a bit run down, you happen to bump into a virus, uh, you're tired, you've lost some weight, uh, suddenly you can feel some lymph nodes. I mean, really, uh, of of course, you're going to start asking that question.
0: Yeah, this is the end. That's it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's it. That's it. It's like I... I worked hard at school. I went to all my, and then worked hard since then. Went to all that effort to get into this degree, and now I'm going to die. How annoying is that? <laughs> um, whereas, of course, you know there are many great treatments for lymphoma now, but that's not where that's not where that line of thought takes you no, when you're no. fronting up to the GP. No, no, you're doomed by then. Um, and yet, and yet, I, and yet, you appear to be well now.
0: Indeed, indeed, no lymphoma for me. Yeah. Excellent. So other than uh, advising medical students to not diagnose themselves with all sorts of things, (laughs) um, do you have any final messages you'd like to impart on the Australian medical students?
1: Um, Yeah, look, I think for a start, congratulations for getting there. It's far from easy. It's a great accomplishment to get into the course. And as much as possible, try to stay calm, try to be nice to yourself and the people around you and try to occasionally allow other things into your life as well uh, while you make sure you do what you need to do in the medicine.
0: Yeah, I really like that. The importance of having a balanced life is sort of becoming more and more apparent to me. I sort of, as soon as med started, I sort of dropped a good few of my major hobbies and now I'm realising that I kind of need them to, um, you know, keep me sane.
1: Yes, and I think there are there are lots of forces working against you when it comes to uh, allowing yourself to spend any time and thought on things um, other than medicine, and um, no medical course means to do that to you. Uh, and they they really do care about the well being of students, but within any medical course, uh, there are uh, there are lecturers and there are subjects. That all place demands their own independent demands on you, and the sum total of each of those reasonable demands is a very significant total. And uh, and I, you know, I I know that the medical faculties are conscious of that. Um, but um, but yeah, the more you can give yourself a chance occasionally to glance around at other things, um, the better off you'll be. I think.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you very much for uh, all of your many insights. I've certainly learned a lot, and I'm sure uh, those playing along at home also have. Uh, thanks very much for taking the time to chat to me.
1: That's a pleasure, Aidan. Look, thanks very much for having me on. It's been great to, great to have the chance to talk about some things that I don't get to talk about all the time, so I really appreciate it.
0: Absolutely, no worries. Thanks very much for tuning into Amps's Ampure Ampule podcast, where we discuss the things you don't talk about in med school. If you have any feedback for the podcast or ideas of topics or guests you'd like to see in the future, I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me by email on podcast at amsa.org.au. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the AMSA Annual Series do not necessarily represent those of the Australian Medical Student Association.